From Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation, this is the podcast Wikiredia, wherein we read from start to finish, without comment or commentary, the Wikipedia entries that we find most interesting. Today's topic, the 1956 Grand Canyon Midair Collision. The original Wikipedia page lives at www.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash 1956 underscore grand underscore canyon underscore midair underscore collision. Before we start, we want to know what your favorite Wikipedia pages are. Please send suggestions for future episodes to wikiredia at pm.me. This is the 1956 Grand Canyon Midair Collision, Wikiredia episode number 206, date of production March 17, 2021. And I'm your host, Eric Gorris. Let's get started. Nineteen fifty-six Grand Canyon Mid-Air Collision. For the nineteen eighty-six accident, see Grand Canyon Airlines Flight Six. The Grand Canyon Mid-Air Collision occurred on June thirtieth, nineteen fifty-six, when a United Airlines Douglas DC seven struck a Transworld Airlines Lockheed L ten forty-nine Super Constellation over the Grand Canyon National Park. All 128 on board both flights perished, making it the first commercial airline crash to result in more than 100 deaths. The collision took place in uncontrolled airspace, where it was the pilot's own responsibility to maintain separation. Thus highlighted the antiquated state of air traffic control, which became the focus of major aviation reforms. Information Box United Airlines Flight 718 TWA Flight 2 Date June 30th, 1956 Summary Mid-air collision due to inadequate air traffic control systems Site Grand Canyon, Arizona Total fatalities 128 Total survivors 0 First aircraft Type A Douglas DC-7 mainliner Name, Mainliner Vancouver. Operator, United Airlines. Registration, N6324C. Flight origin, Los Angeles International Airport. And destination, Chicago Midway Airport. Passengers, 53. Crew, 5. Fatalities, 58. Survivors, 0. Second aircraft, a Lockheed 10L1049A Super Constellation. Name, Star of the Sen. Operator, Transworld Airlines. Registration, N6902C. Flight origin, Los Angeles International Airport. And destination, Kansas City Downtown Airport. Passengers, 64. Crew, 6. Fatalities, 70. Survivors, 0. Collision. At about 10.30 a.m., the flight paths of the two aircraft intersected over the canyon, and they collided at an angle of about 25 degrees. Post-crash analysis determined that the United DC-7 was banked to the right and pitched down at the time of the collision, suggesting that one or possibly both of the United pilots saw the TWA constellation 
before impact and attempted evasive action. The DC-7's upraised left wing clipped the top of the Constellation's vertical stabilizer and struck the fuselage immediately ahead of the stabilizer's base, causing the tail assembly to break away from the rest of the airframe. The propeller on the DC-7's left outboard, or number one engine, concurrently chopped a series of gashes into the bottom of the Constellation's fuselage. Explosive decompression would have instantaneously occurred from the damage, a theory substantiated by light debris, such as cabin furnishings and personal effects, being scattered over a large area. The separation of the tail assembly from the Constellation resulted in immediate loss of control, causing the aircraft to enter a near-vertical terminal velocity dive. Plunging into the Grand Canyon at an estimated speed of more than 477 miles per hour, the Constellation slammed into the north slope of a ravine located to the northeast slope of Temple Butte and disintegrated on impact, instantly killing all aboard. An intense fire fueled by aviation gasoline ensued. The severed tail assembly, badly battered but still somewhat recognizable, came to rest nearby. The DC-7's left wing to the left side of the number one engine was mangled by the impact and was no longer capable of producing substantial lift. The engine had been severely damaged as well, and the combined loss of lift and propulsion left the crippled airliner in a rapidly descending left spiral from which recovery was impossible. The mainliner collided with the south side cliff of Schwar Butte and disintegrated, again instantly killing all aboard. Flight History Transworld Airlines Flight 2, a Lockheed L-1049 Super Constellation named Star of the Seine, with Captain Jack Andy, age 41, First Officer James Rittner, 31, and Flight Engineer Forrest Brayfogle, 37, departed Los Angeles on Saturday, June 30, 1956, at 9.01 a.m., with 64 passengers and six crew members, and headed to Kansas City Downtown Airport, 31 minutes behind schedule. Flight 2, initially flying under instrument flight rules, IFR, climbed to an authorized altitude of 19,000 feet and stayed in controlled airspace as far as Daggett, California. At Daggett, Captain Gandhi turned right to a heading of 06059 degrees magnetic towards the radio range near Trinidad, Colorado. The constellation was now off airways, otherwise known as flying in uncontrolled airspace. United Airlines Flight 718, a Douglas DC-7 named Mainliner Vancouver, and flown by Captain Robert Shirley, age 48, First Officer Robert Harms, 36, and Flight Engineer Gerald Fiore, 39, departed Los Angeles International Airport at 9.04 a.m. with 53 passengers and five crew members aboard, bound for Chicago's Midway Airport. Climbing to an authorized altitude of 21,000 feet, Captain Shirley flew under IFR in controlled airspace to a point northeast of Palm Springs, California, where he turned left towards a radio beacon near Needles, California, after which his flight plan was directed to Durango in southwest Colorado. The DC-7, though still under IFR jurisdiction, was now, just like the Constellation, flying in uncontrolled airspace. 
Shortly after takeoff, TWA's Captain Gandhi requested permission to climb to 21,000 feet to avoid thunderheads that were forming near his flight path. As was the practice at the time, his request had to be relayed by a TWA dispatcher to air traffic control, ATC, as neither crew was in direct contact with air traffic control after departure. Air traffic control denied the request. The two airliners would soon be re-entering controlled airspace, the Red 15 airway running southeast from Las Vegas, and air traffic control had no way to provide the horizontal separation required between two aircraft at the same altitude. Captain Gandhi requested 1,000 on top clearance, flying 1,000 feet above the clouds, which is still IFR, not VFR, which was approved by ATC, air traffic control. The provision to operate 1,000 on top exists so that separation restrictions normally applied by air traffic control can be temporarily suspended. An aircraft cleared to operate 1,000 on top provides its own separation for other IFR aircraft, especially useful when two aircraft are transitioning to or from an approach where VFR conditions exist above cloud layers. Flying VFR placed the responsibility for maintaining safe separation from other aircraft upon Gandhi and Rittner, a procedure referred to as see and be seen, since changed to see and avoid. Upon receiving the 1,000-on-top clearance, Captain Gandhi increased his altitude to 21,000 feet. Both crews had estimated that they would arrive somewhere along the Painted Desert Line at about 10.31 a.m. Pacific Time. The Painted Desert Line was about 200 miles long, running between the VORs at Bryce Canyon, Utah, and Winslow, Arizona, at an angle of 335 degrees relative to true north, wholly outside of controlled airspace. Owing to the different headings taken by the two planes, TWA's crossing of the Painted Desert Line, assuming no further course changes, would be at a 13-degree angle relative to that of the United flight, with the constellation to the left of the DC-7. As the two aircraft approached the Grand Canyon, now at the same altitude and nearly the same speed, the pilots were very likely maneuvering around towering cumulus clouds, though flying VFR required the TWA flight to stay in clear air. As they were maneuvering near the canyon, it is believed the planes passed the same cloud on opposite sides. Search and Recovery The airspace over the canyon was not under any type of radar contact, and there were neither homing beacons nor black boxes aboard either aircraft. The last position reports received from the flights did not reflect their locations at the time of impact. Also, there were no credible witnesses to the collision itself or the subsequent crashes. The only immediate indication of trouble was when United Company radio operators in Salt Lake City and San Francisco heard a garbled transmission from Flight 718, the last from either aircraft. Accident investigation engineers later deciphered the transmission, which had been preserved on magnetic tape, as the voice of co-pilot Robert Harms declaring, quote, Salt Lake 718, we are going in. The shrill voice of Captain Shirley was heard in the background, struggling with the controls. He implored the plane to pull up, pull up. 
After neither flight reported their current position for some time, the two aircraft were declared to be missing, and search and rescue procedures started. The wreckage was first seen late in the day near the confluence of the Colorado and Little Colorado Rivers by Henry and Palin Hudgen, two brothers who operated Grand Canyon Airlines, a small air taxi service. During a trip earlier in the day, Palin had noticed dense black smoke rising near Temple Butte, the crash site of the Constellation, but had dismissed it as the brush fire set ablaze by lightning. However, upon hearing of the missing airliners, Palin decided that what he had seen might have been smoking from a post-crash fire. He and his brother flew a light aircraft, a Piper Tri-Pacer, deep into the canyon and searched near the location of the smoke. The Constellation's empennage was found and the brothers reported their findings to authorities. The following day, the two men pinpointed the wrecking wreckage of the DC-7. Numerous helicopter missions were subsequently flown down to the crash sites to find and attempt to identify victims, as well as recover wreckage for accident analysis, a difficult and dangerous process due to the rugged terrain and unpredictable air currents. The airlines hired the Swiss Air Rescue and some Swiss mountain climbers to go to the scene where the aircraft fuselages had crashed. They were to gather the remains of the passengers and other items. This was given considerable publicity in the United States news releases at the time because of the severity of the terrain where the fuselages came to rest. Owing to the exceptional severity of the ground impacts, no bodies were recovered intact, and positive identification of most of the remains was not possible. On July 9, 1956, a mass funeral for the victims of TWA Flight 2 was held at the canyon's south rim. 29 unidentified victims of the United flight were interred in four coffins at Grand Canyon Pioneer Cemetery. 66 of the 70 TWA passengers and crew are interred in a mass grave at Citizen Cemetery in Flagstaff, Arizona. A number of years elapsed following this accident before most of the wreckage was removed from the canyon. Some pieces of the aircraft remain at the crash sites today. Investigation. The investigation of this accident was particularly challenging due to the remoteness and topography of the crash sites, as well as the extent of the destruction of the two airliners and the lack of real-time flight data, as might be derived from a modern flight data recorder. Despite the considerable difficulties, the Civil Aeronautics Board experts were able to determine with a remarkable degree of certainty what had transpired and in their report issued the following statement as probable cause for the accident, and I quote, The board determines that the probable cause of this mid-air collision was that the pilots did not see each other in time to avoid the collision. It is not possible to determine why the pilots did not see each other, but the evidence suggests that it resulted from any one or a combination of the following factors. Intervening clouds, reducing time for visual separation, visual limitations due to cockpit visibility, and preoccupation with normal cockpit duties. Preoccupation with matters unrelated to cockpit duties, such as attempting to provide the passengers with a more scenic view of the Grand Canyon area. Physiological limits to human vision, reducing the time opportunity to see and avoid the other aircraft, 
or insufficiency of en route air traffic advisory information due to inadequacy of facilities and lack of personnel in air traffic control, end quote. In the report, weather and the airworthiness of the two planes were thought to have played no role in the accident. Lacking credible eyewitnesses and with some uncertainty regarding the high-altitude visibility at the time of the collision, it is not possible to determine conclusively how much opportunity was available for the TWA and United pilots to see and avoid each other. Neither flight crew was specifically implicated in the Civil Air Aerodotics Board finding of probable cause, although the decision by TWA's Captain Gandhi to cancel his IFR flight plan and fly 1,000 on top was the likely catalyst for the accident. Also worth noting was that the investigation itself was thorough in all respects, but the final report focused on technical issues and largely ignored contributory human factors, such as why the airlines permitted their pilots to execute maneuvers solely intended to improve the passengers' view of the canyon. It would not be until the late 1970s that human factors would be as thoroughly investigated as technical matters following aerial mishaps. During the investigation, Milford Mel Hunter, a scientific and technical illustrator with Life magazine, was given early and unrestricted access to the CAB's data and preliminary findings, enabling him to produce an illustration of what likely occurred at the moment of the collision. Hunter's finely detailed gouache painting first appeared in Life's April 29, 1957 issue and was subsequently included in David Garrow's 1996 edition of Aviation Disasters 2. In a letter to Garrow in 1995, Hunter wrote, quote, I was able to plot the two intersecting flight paths and the fact that both planes were in each other's blind spot. I remember showing that the descending aircraft's propellers chewed a series of gashes along the fuselage top of the ascending aircraft. I did a lot of this type of factual recreation for life. They were always extremely tough to piece together to the satisfaction of all the editors, art directors, and assorted researchers who were assigned to such projects, but it was extremely interesting work, end quote. Hunter's recollection of his illustration was not completely accurate. The painting showed the DC-7 below the constellation, with the former's number one engine beneath the latter's fuselage, which agreed with the CAB technical findings. Catalyst for Change At 128 fatalities, the Grand Canyon collision became the deadliest U.S. commercial airline disaster and deadliest air crash on U.S. soil of any kind, surpassing United Airlines Flight 409 the year before. It was surpassed in both respects on December 16, 1960, by the 1960 New York mid-air collision, another case involving United and TWA aircraft. The accident was covered by the press worldwide, and as the story unfolded, the public learned of the primitive nature of air traffic control and how little was being done to modernize it. The air traffic controller who had cleared TWA to a thousand on top was severely criticized as he had not advised Captains Gandhi and Shirley about the potential for a traffic conflict following the clearance, even though he must have known of the possibility. The controller was publicly blamed for the accident by both airlines and was vilified in the press, but he was cleared of any wrongdoing. As Charles Carmody, T. 
The then assistant air traffic control director testified during the investigation, neither flight was legally under the control of air traffic control when they collided as both were, quote, off airways. The controller was not required to issue a traffic conflict advisory to either pilot. According to the CAB Accident Investigation Final Report, page 8, the in-route controller relayed a traffic advisory regarding United 718 to TWA's ground radio operator, quote, ATC clears TWA2 maintain at least 1,000 on top. Advised TWA2 his traffic is United 718, direct Durango, estimating needles at 0957. The TWA operator testified that Captain Gandhi acknowledged the information on the United flight as, quote, traffic received. The accident was particularly alarming in that public confidence in air travel had increased during the 1950s with the introduction of new airliners like the Super Constellation, the Douglas DC-7, and the Boeing Stratocruiser. Travel by air had become routine for large corporations, and vacationers often considered flying ahead instead of traveling by train. At the time, a congressional committee was reviewing domestic air travel as there was growing concern over the number of accidents. However, little progress was being made, and the state of air traffic control at the time of the Grand Canyon accident reflected the methods of the 1930s. As near misses and mid-air collisions continued, the public demanded action. Often contentious, congressional hearings followed, and in 1957, increased funding was allocated to modernize air traffic control, hire and train more air traffic controllers, and procure much-needed radar, initially military surplus equipment. However, control of American airspace continued to be split between the military and the Civil Aeronautics Administration, CAA, the federal agency in charge of air traffic control at the time. The CAA had no authority over military flights, which could enter controlled airspace with no warning to other traffic. The result was a series of near misses and collisions involving civil and military aircraft, the latter often often flying at much higher speeds than the former. For example, in 1958, the collision of United Airlines Flight 736 flying, quote, on airways and a F-100 Super Sabre fighter jet near Las Vegas, Nevada, resulted in 49 fatalities. Again, an action was demanded. After more hearings, the Federal Aviation Act of 1958 was passed, dissolving the CAA and creating the Federal Aviation Agency, the FAA, later renamed the Federal Aviation Administration in 1966. The FAA was given total authority over American airspace, including military activity, and as procedures and air traffic control facilities were modernized, mid-air collisions gradually became less frequent. Landmark, Dramatizations, and Literary Reference On April 22, 2014, the site of the crash was declared a National Historic Landmark, making it the first landmark for an event that happened in the air. The location, in a remote portion of the canyon only accessible to hikers, has been closed to the public since the 1950s. Dramatization In 2006, the story of this disaster was covered in the third season of the History Channel program UFO Files. The episode, entitled Black Box UFO Secrets, contained the universal newsreel footage of the accident narrated by Ed Harrelly. 
In 2010, the story of the disaster, along with other mid-air collisions, was featured on the eighth season of the National Geographic Channel show Mayday. The special episode is entitled System Breakdown. In 2013, an episode from the 12th season entitled Grand Canyon Disaster also featured this accident. In 2015, the first season of Mysteries at the National Parks on the Travel Channel, in the series' seventh episode entitled Portal to the Underworld, the crash was also featured and was mentioned as being a supernatural event. Literary Reference In his novel Skeleton Man, 2004, Tony Hillerman uses this event as the backdrop to his story. In the Arthur Haley novel Airport, Mel thinks that another big disaster like this incident would arouse public awareness about the airport's deficiencies. In Colin Fletcher's 1963 account of Walking Grand Canyon National Park End to End, The Man Who Walked Through Time, he gives an account of somberly hiking by the wreckage of the aircraft the day after the collision. That's it for today's episode of Wikiredia. Look, before you go, be sure to hit subscribe, follow us on Twitter at It's Wikiredia, and tell your friends. What do you want to listen to? Send topic ideas to our email, which is wikiredia at pm.me. Our producer and narrator, that's me, is Eric Gorris. Our engineer is OJ Tingles, and our content editor is Johnny Rocketship. We ask you to support this show by following and sharing, but more importantly, just listening. We also ask that you do your part to support Wikipedia itself by considering a donation donation to the Wikipedia Foundation. That can be done at wikipedia.org. All, or at least the vast majority, of the words spoken on this show are from the text of Wikipedia entries, and we're using those words under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license, which grants us, and in fact anyone, the right to adapt the original work remix it, and then to distribute and transmit the work even for commercial purposes. This license requires that we name the author of the original work, which in this case is Wikipedia. Wikiredia itself is also distributed under the same Creative Commons attribution, Sharealike 3.0 license. Wikiredia is a production of Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation. <laughs>